Turn with me, if you get, when it will again, to uh, Genesis chapter 1. <coughs> Genesis chapter 1. Our text this morning is perhaps the most familiar chapter in the whole Bible. When we began our Sunday school program back in the fall, most all of uh, our children, almost every child in this church, and in thousands of other churches, uh, studied this chapter. In fact, even people who have never darkened the door of the church have heard about this chapter, and in fact they think they know what it's all about and certainly have an opinion about it. At the same time, this text is one of the most frustrating chapters in the whole Bible. It addresses questions pertinent to every human being on the face of the earth, but after we've studied it, we're left with more questions than we started. It is simple enough to teach a child, but it defies the understanding of even the most brilliant scholar. And while its teaching is so familiar to so many, I'm afraid that most of us show little evidence of really understanding its truth. Speaking, of course, of the creation account here in the first chapter of Genesis, our text for the morning. Now, we began this last week. There are slightly over 1,500 verses in the book of Genesis. So in a moment when I needed a little break, I figured it out. If we continue to proceed at the pace we started last week, one Sunday, one verse per Sunday, given time off for vacations and special holiday messages, we should finish the book of Genesis sometime in about June of 2038. I'll be 94 then. Or we could just pick up the pace, which is what we're going to do. Let me read this very familiar creation account, Genesis 1-1, all the way through the end of the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the water. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the waters under the, ex under the expanse from the waters above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening. And there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. 
and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give her light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the waters teem according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the water of the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And we'll end there. There's so many things we want to know about these verses that we just cannot know. But God has made some things crystal clear. And I want us to consider two of those truths this morning. And just to give credit where credit is due, this morning I will use as main points two quotes from Alan Ross's book, Creation and Blessing. I haven't figured out any better way to say these things. The first is this. God transforms chaos to creation. God transforms chaos to creation. Now, when we think of Genesis 1, I know that chaos is not necessarily something that comes to our mind. Didn't God create everything good? Don't we see here a perfect world even before uh, Adam's sin, before the fall of man? How could there be anything but beauty in this world? Unless you look at verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. You see, the creation account 
does not start with verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Nor does it jump from verse 1 to verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. No, that's not what we find here. Instead, God saw fit to tell us something very significant between the statement of asserting God's creation of the heavens and the earth in the beginning and the description of the six creative days. We know it's significant because of the grammar of the Hebrew text, and I'm not an expert on Hebrew, but I read the experts, and, 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 and they pointed out that this word in the, in the earth was formless and empty could just as well be translated in the word and the, and the earth became formless and empty as if something happened there. And what's even more certain is that verse 2 begins with a little uh, marking in the Hebrew called Arabia. That indicates that verse 2 begins with a disjunctive, not a conjunctive. In other words, it cannot be translated, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. It must be translated, God created the, the heavens and the earth, but the earth was without form and void. Something significant is described in verse 2. And it's quite a description. Two key words, formless and empty. These are two rhyming Hebrew words. Tohu and bohu. Don't name your twins that. Tohu and bohu. They can also be translated waste and void, formless and empty. These words are used together in only two other places in the scripture, and both of those are places where God is describing the devastation of his judgment. In Isaiah 34, 11, we read, God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. There's the two words, chaos and desolation. In Jeremiah 4, 23, speaking of the result when God's judgment will come, he says, I looked at the earth and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. In other words, it had returned to Genesis 1-2, formless and empty and dark. Indeed, darkness is part of the description in verse 2. Darkness covered the face of the earth. Darkness is never a very good indicator in the Bible. Throughout the Bible, it's, it's associated with sin and death. It's not conducive to life, but darkness was joined with the formlessness and the emptiness. But the Spirit hovered over the water. God was still there. God was still firmly in control. But the situation is a mysterious one. Calvin translates it, confused emptiness. To add to the mystery, Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18 states, the Lord created the heavens and formed the earth. He established it and did not make it a waste place. Same word, tohu. God created the heavens and earth and did not make it a waste place. Hmm, something significant is going on here. Indeed, this verse sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. For as many scholars have pointed out, the six creative days which follow, that we know so well, really simply answer and remedy this chaos, this formlessness and emptiness described in verse 2. 
So for the first three creative days, the first three creative days are about bringing form into the formlessness. On day one, the light is separated from the darkness to form day and night. In day two, the waters are separated from the waters to form an expanse of sky. In day three, the seas are separated from the dry land. The, 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 the formlessness is dealt with in the first three days as God brings order here. David Atkinson writes, The earth is without form and void is without form, but God is giving it form. The deep is covered in darkness, but God will command the light. The fearful sea will be contained. The frightening chaotic deep will be brought to order. There's a separation of the waters. Coastlines and riverbeds become part of the picture. Tracks are being made in the desert. The storm is being reined in. And when God makes a firmament or expanse separating the waters from the waters, we see a God who's making space for an inhabitable world. God is making space for an earth open to heaven in which plants and trees can grow and animals and human beings can have their life and livelihood. You see, God is transforming the formless chaos into an orderly creation. But as the first three days answer the tohu, the formlessness, the next three days answer the bohu, the emptiness. And these three are parallel to the first three. So that where God separated the light from the darkness on day one, when we go to day four, he now forms lights to regulate the day and the night, the sun, moon, stars. And where God divided the waters and formed the sky on day two, when we go to day five, God now fills the waters with living creatures and fills the skies with birds. And where God divided the seas to form inhabitable land on day three, he now fills that land with living things and makes man in his own image on day six. You see, the description in verse two, the earth was without form and void becomes crucial to our understanding of everything that's going on in this chapter, everything that God does in the rest of the chapter for he's answering and, 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 and fixing the condition of verse 2. Here God's telling us that he transforms chaos into creation. So what's the meaning of this chaos in verse 2? Why did God even include such a statement in this text? Frankly, I don't know. I don't know. That would be reason enough, by the way, to make it clear that we don't know much about the beginning. We don't know much. Some have, some have suggested that millions of years could have passed under the conditions of verse 2. Could have been an inhabited earth, which came under God's judgment and destruction during that time. It's often suggested that the dreary condition described there was a result of Satan's fall, for it's associated with judgment in other places. We know that Satan's fall had to come sometime before the Garden of Eden. Those suggestions are made by people who hold to a gap theory, that's the belief that there's an enormous time gap between verse 1 and verse 3, which helps explain the age of the earth. 
This view has been quite popular among Christians for years, where it tries to take the Bible seriously and at the same time do something with the scientific evidence. It was the view of such prominent men as C.S. Lewis, Donald Gray Barnhouse, more recently Francis Schaeffer. So is that why God put these mysterious words in the creation account? To give us a way to try to accommodate old earth evidence? I think not. The gap theory may be right, but it has its own problems. God is not answering our questions about such things. Instead, God is telling us something about himself. Something that we desperately need to know. Something that Israel desperately needed to know in their chaotic days in the wilderness. God is making sure that we understand that he is the one who transforms chaos into creation. A.W. Pink summarized it well. Out of the chaos was brought the cosmos, which signifies order, arrangement, beauty. Out of the waters emerged the earth. A scene of desolation, darkness, and death was transformed into one of light, life, and fertility so that at the end all was pronounced very good. Folks, this is not just the story of our creation. This is the promise of our redemption. God transforms chaos to creation. Moses himself made that kind of connection, though it's not real obvious to us when we first read it. But in Deuteronomy 32, Moses tells how the Lord found his people in the desert in a barren, howling waste, he says. You guessed it, same word, tohu, chaotic wasteland. But the Lord guarded his people there like an eagle that hovers over its young Once again, same word as in Genesis 1-2. Rare word that talks about the Spirit hovering over the deep. You see, Moses is using the language of God's creative acts to tell of his great redemptive acts. God transforms chaos into creation, not just when making the heavens and the earth, but when making his people a great nation, when bringing them to dwell safely, in his promised inheritance. And might I suggest that the Apostle Paul does the same kind of thing. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he describes the desperate condition of a world without Christ. I quote, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the gospel. They cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Darkness. Void. Hopeless. But in verse 6, he announces the good news. But God, who said, let there be light, Genesis 1-3, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what Paul's doing? He is using this creative work of God, this great truth which explains uh, not only how God created, but it explains his saving work. God transforms chaos into creation. Oh, dear people, this is not some small thing here. 
we live in a world that is made chaotic very often in very many ways, made formless, void, and dark by the sin and the death that permeates it. Indeed, even today, some of your lives, as you sit in this room, might well be described by Calvin's translation, confused emptiness. Sound familiar? Certainly there's chaos and darkness, which is overwhelming everywhere that we look. So what do you do? What hope do we have in the midst of that? Try to get in touch with our inner self? What nonsense. Try to pursue the empty promises of material or sensual satisfaction? What hopelessness. What we need to know what every one of us needs to know for every moment of our life is that the God who in the beginning created heaven and earth, that transcendent, self-existent, self-reliant, eternal God, He is in the business of transforming chaos to creation. He's the one our hearts thirst for. He's our only hope. He's our creator, and He's become our Savior. He is the one who can transform our heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh. He's the one that calls us to listen to him and to trust him and to walk in his ways. Then there's a second truth I want us to consider. God transforms chaos into creation, but God creates everything by his powerful word. God creates everything by his powerful word. As we read this account of the creative days, we cannot help but be impressed by the fact that God is the only subject in all these verses. There are many objects that are acted upon, but God is the actor. We read that God saw God separated, God called, God made, God set, God created, and we read all of those numerous times. God is the creator, the only actor in the beginning. Oh, but most impressively and most frequently in this chapter, we read that God said. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, the sky, and it was so. God said, let the water be gathered and the dry ground appear, and it was so. God said, let the, let the land produce vegetation, and it was so. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky, and it was so. God said, let the waters teem with living creatures and the birds in the sky, and God created it so. God said, let the land produce living creatures, and it was so. And God said, let us make man in our own image, and it was so. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. And God said, I give you every plant and tree that has fruit, they will be yours for food. And it was so. Arthur Pink writes, observe that here is to be found the first divine decalogue. Ten times we read, and God said, and God said. And God said, 
which Pink says may be termed the Ten Commandments of creation. Is this an accident? Is this an interesting little bit of literary flair here? Is this a strange coincidence in this ancient writing, or is God trying to tell us something? Is God making a point? Well, there are no accidents or coincidences with God. He wants us to understand that he creates everything by his powerful word. In case there's any question about that, the New Testament brings corroborating evidence. In John chapter 1, when the Holy Spirit is explaining how the eternal Son of God is both equal with the Father and is the agent in the creation of the heavens and the earth, what does he call him? He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by him. In other words, the Holy Spirit is also saying through John that God created everything through his powerful Word. Hebrews 11.3 says the same thing. By faith we understand that the universe was formed, how? At God's command, let there be, God said. God created everything by his powerful word. Now what does that add to our knowledge of how the creation took place? For I know that this is very much a struggle that we all have to try to bring the scientific inquiry that we're confronted with into line with what God's truth says. So what does this add? Does it help us at all to know that God creates everything by his powerful word? Well, I think it does help. It would seem to rule out evolution as a system, whether atheistic or theistic evolution. For you see, evolutionary explanations, by definition, posit a closed system that grinds on towards something, that there's no possibility of some interference from a creative word from God. But here God says otherwise. Here God says that he created everything by his powerful word. So it would seem to rule out an evolutionary scenario. It does not seem to answer the questions about whether these 24-hour day, whether these are 24-hour days, and therefore we have a young earth, or whether they are six-day ages, and therefore we have an old earth. Either view could conceivably honor this truth that God creates everything by his powerful word. Some argue that these have to be six literal 24-hour days. That certainly is the easiest way to understand the text. And there are many Christians who are laboring in the field of, in different sciences trying to bring evidence to prove that. We need to listen to them. At the same time, we have already seen that the six creative days, while setting forth historical facts, are at the same time a stylized account. Remember how their very structure uh, addresses the, the, the forming and the filling of the world in answer to verse 2, the formlessness and emptiness. And they have other stylistic traits, the repeated phrases, and the Lord said, let there be. And it was so. 
Is it morning, the evening and the morning were the whatever day? So there's at least the possibility, isn't there, that these days are also stylistic indicators. The text certainly doesn't suggest such an understanding, but I don't believe it closes the door to that discussion. But what it does tell us is that whether in six 24-hour days or in six-day ages, all things came into being by a decisive, creative, divine word. And to say anything less is to miss the point completely. God creates everything by his powerful word. And so we're left with many questions about creation. And frankly, too many people, too many Christians, are willing to do anything necessary to completely dismantle God's word if necessary in order to bow at the feet of the scientific theory of the day. You need to hear the counsel of Arthur Pink who says, we have little patience with those who labor to show that the teaching of this chapter is in harmony with modern science. We might as well ask whether the celestial clock is in keeping with the timepiece in Greenwich. No, it's the other way around. Rather, must it be the part of scientists to bring their declarations into accord with the teaching of Genesis 1 if they are to receive the respect of the children of God? What a pity if we allow Satan to use scientific theory to destroy our confidence in God's Word, especially when the power and the effectiveness of God's word is the very point of the creation account. You see, God is not trying to tell us everything we want to know about how the earth was formed. He's making sure that we know what we need to know about how he does his work. He creates by his powerful word. And if there's any question about the perfection of the word of God, we need to only consider Psalm 19 that begins, The heavens declare the glory of God. Oh, how majestic. But that's only the introduction to the greatest perfection, which we find in the later part of the psalm. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You see, how much we understand of the glory of the creation is only secondary. What really matters is that we have confidence in God's word. And most pointedly, in the Word who has now become flesh and dwelt among us, who is revealed here. For God creates everything by His powerful Word. And dear ones, it is impossible to overstate the implications of this great truth before us here in this creation account. This truth that's reiterated throughout every page of the Bible. This truth means that the only hope for the chaos of your life is the entrance of God's Word. The Word of the Gospel found in the Scripture. Some of us wallow through life living in chaotic, 
emptiness and wonder what's gone wrong. And yet God's word is preached from this pulpit twice every Sunday and studied in five or six different places in this congregation and some of us never are there, never pay attention to it and wonder why the chaos in my life. Because the entrance of God's word gives light, that's why. And if you don't have the entrance of God's word, you live in darkness and chaos and formlessness. This also means that the only hope for order and beauty in the nations of the world is allegiance to the word of God, to the royal king whose name is the word and whose word is recorded in the Bible. We're about into a political campaign. You have great hopes for George W. Bush, or Al Gore, Bill Bradley, or McCain. All false hope. Just another politician, another day. The only hope for the world is in this royal king who's called the Word, for God creates everything. God brings the, 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 the chaos into creation by his powerful word, no other way. Which means that the only agenda that's worthy of this church, or of any church, is the proclamation of and the obedience to the Holy Scriptures and thereby to the word the Lord, the head of the church, revealed there. We ought not waste our time doing other things. This is what we're about. You see, God wants us to learn right here on the very first page of the Bible that his powerful ways, ways that we can never comprehend, are not just our ways rehashed. God alone is able to create something from nothing. God al alone is, able to, is wise enough to make the chaos into a cosmos. God alone is able to bring order out of the chaos. God is alone is able to fill the emptiness with the bounty of his creation. And when God does it, it is very, very good. But God works all these things. He works everything by his powerful, creative word. Well, perhaps God hasn't given us the account of creation we thought we wanted. <laughs> Certainly leaves us with a lot of open questions. Does me, anyway. So what would be an adequate account? God has recorded his creation in this beautifully styled historical prose, perhaps we could call it. Would you rather have a scientific account? I ran across a wonderful quote that I'd like to close with. It's a bit long, but I want to read it to you. It's a quote from a professor of chemistry named Frederick A. Philby. As he addresses that question concerning the kind of creation account we've been given. The quote is from his book, Creation Revealed, though I got it from James Boyce. Let me read it to you. The sciences which probe most deeply into the ultimate facts of matter and life 
are probably astro and nuclear physics and biochemistry. But these sciences are written not so much in language as in symbols. It takes many pages of symbols to discuss the nature of a single atom of hydrogen. It has been estimated that to give a complete account of the position of the groups and bonds in a single virus of molecular weight 300 million would take a 200-page book. If the scientific description of a single hydrogen atom or of a virus too small to be seen without a microscope takes a book, what hope is there of ever giving the scientific account of the creation of man in the universe? Yet Genesis 1, in its original form, uses only 76 different root words. If Genesis, <coughs> Genesis 1 were written in absolute scientific language to give an account of creation, there is no man alive nor has there ever been who could understand it. If it were written in any kind of scientific language, only the favored few could comprehend. And it would have to be rewritten every generation to conform to the new views and the new terms of science. It could not be written in our mid-20th century scientific language, for no earlier gen generation could have grasped its meaning. And our children, and to our children it would be out of date. The scientific description of the how of the universe is beyond the understanding of any human brain. But Genesis 1 was written for all readers, not none. What then would be the best method for the creator to use for one making a beginning to his book and two, establishing that the God of the Bible is also the God of creation in language simple enough for all men in all time? Well, the answer is Genesis 1. The most amazing composition in all the world's literature, using only 76 different word forms, fundamental to all mankind, arranged in a wonderful poetic pattern, yet free from any highly colored figures of speech, it provides the perfect opening to God's book and establishes all that men really need to know of the facts of creation. No man could have invented it. It is as great a marvel as a plant or a bird. It is God's handiwork. Sufficient for Hebrew children or Greek thinkers or Latin Christians. For medieval knights or modern scientists or little children. For cottage dwellers or cattle ranchers or deep sea fishermen. For Laplanders or Ethiopians, east or west, rich or poor, old or young, simple or learned. Sufficient for all. Only God could write such a chapter. And he did. Amen. Thank you, Father for the beauty of your word. That though it raises uh, so many questions in our minds, 
scientific thing. Lord, that brings comfort to our souls as we see that you, Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, bring chaos into creation. And that you do so by your mighty word that you've spoken to us too. That you put in our hands and armed us and equipped us to live. Oh Lord, more than that, your word that you reveal to us in the person of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. Oh Lord, deliver us from the arrogance and the cynicism of our day regarding these things. And Lord, may we delight in that which you told us and readily bow our knees and our hearts and our minds to our Creator, who has become our Savior 